One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. An Elio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we'll be speaking with guest expert Deborah Blum. Deborah is a Pulitzer Prize winning American science journalist and author of six books, including The Poison Squad and The Poisoner's Handbook. She currently serves on the board of advisors of the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing and is the director of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Let's hear what she has to say about the 1858 Bradford Sweets poisoning. Hi, Deborah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so before we get dive into the Bradford, you know, sweets poisoning, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, your, your writing focuses on poison and, and you have a scientific background. What sparked your interest in science writing and this topic? Well, I'm actually uh, the daughter of a scientist, oh. so I grew up with science. My dad was an entomologist and chemical ecologist, and I'm also a fa- what I think of as a failed chemistry major. <laughs> so when I started as an undergrad, I was a chemistry major, and I discovered, I think it's, you know, the journalist's brain. Um, I've got a relatively short attention span, so I was not the kind of person you necessarily wanted to see doing meticulous work in a laboratory. (laughs) And in the space of my first year, I generated a toxic cloud that forced them to evacuate the student laboratory. Wow. And and then I set my hair on fire. (laughs) And after that, 
I could never tell that story with a straight face. Um, but after that, I thought, okay, uh, you know, clearly I'm going to kill someone if I stay in chemistry much longer. I went into journalism because I also like to write and then came back to science journalism so I could put all the pieces together, right? Science, writing, chemistry. It's been what it's actually been a great profession. Well, we're happy that you uh, took that route so that we could speak with you today <laughs> about yeah. this. Um, how I, I want to start off by asking, like, uh, some background on sugar. So, do you have any idea how it became popularized? What, how addictive would it have been to those who didn't easily have it at their disposal in the, you know, eighteen hundreds? Yeah, that's a great question. And and so sugar kind of really rose to popularity, I want to say probably in the previous century when with the advent of sugar plantations. And especially when you saw colonial powers like England developing Caribbean sugar plantations, right? Fields and fields of sugarcane. And so it began to be imported to Europe and it was delicious, right? Um, <laughs> as we know today, um, or many of us think so. Um, and so the real problem in the 19th century, which is where we are right now, is that sugar was in great demand and it was extremely expensive. Um, you know, there were sugar plantations, but not that many. There were sugar processing plants in England, but not that many. And the British government, because sugar was so popular, uh, taxed it to the end. There were very high sugar taxes. So that meant that it became this elusive, alluring substance, right? We don't have this problem today. We can like float away in a river of sugar. <laughs> but back in the night, and some people do, but back in the 19th century, uh, you couldn't get sugar if you didn't have much money and you couldn't get much of it. And often candies were only that were supposed to be X percent sugar were cut with other things. And so the, the allure of sugar, the allure of candy was sort of amplified by the fact that it was a rarity. Do you by any chance know how expensive sugar was? We went back and forth uh, on our episode. Yeah, I, you know, I did some looking at that when I was kind of thinking about all the factors that, like you that went into the Bradford poisoning case. And I saw one estimate of a pound of sugar in total being the equivalent of 50 British pounds today, which would be, I mean, we're not, it used to be that the British pound was, you know, it was like 50 pounds would have been a hundred dollars. Now I think it's closer to like 60 or 70. But, but if you use that calculation and you said, I'm going out to the grocery store and I'm going to buy a pound of sugar and I'm going to, you know, spend $70 of my hard earned money on that pound of sugar, you can see just how difficult it was. I mean, I actually think that's probably a, <coughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I think that's probably a fair comparison because if you were poor, you just really could hardly get sugar, right? It was a rich person's food. So, what is daft? And why was it used in the production of candy in the 19th century? So, you know, I've seen it as daft and daft and duck. 
Uh, I kind of like duck. It's just <laughs> more evocative. But it was, uh, it could be gypsum, you know, which we use to make wallboard. Or sometimes it would be plaster of Paris, essentially plaster of Paris, right? Um, so that you would have ground, what what they called white rocks, right? And um, and it was really sold as, as a white powder, right? The way plaster of Paris, you mix up water with the plaster to get, you know, your usable material. And it was used as a common adulterant in foods, not just candy, and it was used in candy, but in the United States, for instance, uh, daft or or, uh, gypsum was often used to cut bread flour, right? Uh, Because it was so cheap compared to the real ingredients. So if you could imagine that sugar was $70 a pound and daft was a dollar a pound, right? you could see how it would make a whole lot of sense to say I can up my profits by cutting the sugar with something tasteless like daff, right? So, I mean, I've often wondered about 19th century foods because adulteration was so crazy, what they actually tasted like. Yeah. Because, you know, I've wondered this with coffee because coffee was so often not coffee in the United States. It was about 90% adulterated in the 19th century with everything from dirt to charred bone to, you know, charred seeds. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff that went into coffee and spices, for instance. And I have wondered if it would be interesting to recreate these 19th century foods as they were adulterated. So you had some clue as to what they tasted like. But my guess is if you've ever, not that we sit around and gnaw on wallboard, right? Um, but plaster of Paris and gypsum are pretty tasteless, right? So I, my guess is that the candies were a little gummier and a little less sweet that we might think for for someone of my income level, right? I can't. I'm not spending seventy dollars for a pound of sugar, so I'm positive that this is the kind of candy. I would have been eating and I just would have had no idea what the real deal tasted like. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So can you give us a breakdown of the unfortunate turn of events that led to the Bradford poisonings? Uh, How did things, how did so many things go wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. And our previous discussion really leads up to it. So this one, Bradford is a city in northwest uh, England, right, in, in the sort of the Yorkshire area, uh, you know, a long-time industrial city. Uh, and this really leads to a guy, his name was William Hardesty, but everyone called him Humbug Billy because he was a purveyor of sweets or candies, right? And he had a stall in the in the Bradford market and he sold a whole mix of different kind of candies. And one of them were humbugs, which are a hard candy. They call them boiled sweets. So I've never exactly understood why in in like the UK. Um, maybe they boil them. That I really don't know. But, <laughs> but they're hard candies. Like you might get a hard peppermint, right, in this country. And a humbug is going to be something like that. It's usually kind of in a circular shape. They're often mint flavored. And so this guy, among the things he thought, 
he sold were mint flavored or peppermint flavored humbugs. And to make them, he bought them from uh, Humbug Billy, bought them from a, a confectioner in Bradford, who also made, you know, made a whole lot of different kinds of candies. And this confectioner would uh, routinely for, you know, people who were selling in the market to people with no money, cut the candy recipe with daft. So there would be um, sugar of some amount. There would be daft of an equal amount or maybe a little more. There would be, you know, the gums and other materials, you know, sort of candy base. And you would mix it all together and, and make it in the form of sweets. And so on the particular steps leading up to the Bradford incident, um, you know, Billy put in his usual order for humbugs with this uh, confectioner, and he uh, was ill that day. And, and so he sent one of his, uh, uh, wait, no, I'm wrong about that. The confectioner was fine, but he bought get daft from a local chemist. And so on the day that he wanted to get the daft, he sent actually one of just one of the people who was a boarder in the house he owned to go get it because he was sick. And the boarder went to the chemist and um, the chemist was sick. <laughs> and so the boarder talked to this very young clerk about getting the deft and the clerk went up into the storeroom. And in the storeroom were all the sort of different supplies that you would have as a chemist. And, and by chemist, I mean pharmacist, right? Pharmacists of the time were called chemists, but they had all of these different supplies to mix up pills and medicine and daft would be used in that too, right? Like the formation of a pill you might swallow. And, and among the other things they had were ingredients uh, that would go into popular medicines. And some of these were, you know, very serious poisons. Strychnine was used at the time as a pick-me-up pick tonic. And arsenic was used in a, a whole number of formulations sold by chemists of the time, including, you know, tonics to improve your complexion and other things. Oh. So Fowler's solution, which, you know, the rumor is actually is was responsible for the death of Jane Austen, right? There are a lot of arsenic-based formulas that were sold in chemist places at that time. And, and arsenic was widely used in a whole lot of things. It was used to color candy, for instance, right? It made a beautiful green candy. And, and I could go off into all the different things that we did with arsenic. <laughs> well, I, I'll, ask, I'll ask that as a follow-up because I'm very yeah, interested. Sorry, I'm kind of going down. <laughs> no. As, as well as having daft, had a, a cask of arsenic and it was a, a white powder. It was arsenic trioxide. And arsenic trioxide is the famous arsenic of homicidal history, right? The, it's the poison that was used by the Borgias and serial poisoners of the 19th century. And when you hear people say that arsenic was the inheritance powder, which was what it was called in the 19th century. Wow. <laughs> and that was arsenic trioxide. And the other thing about arsenic, which makes it very like daft, is that it's a, it comes in a white powder. And both of them are tasteless and odorless. Arsenic was a wonderful poison if you were homicidal because it was a tasteless and odorless poison. So this young clerk goes up into the storeroom 
and the barrels or casks are not particularly well labeled and he picks the wrong barrel. And instead of, you know, shoveling out 12, and it was 12 pounds, instead of shoveling out 12 pounds of daft, he shovels up 12 pounds of arsenic Mm. and they were only making 40 pounds of candy. So now you have arsenic is well over a fourth of the ingredient in this candy and they make the candy at the confectioner's place and people on the line get sick. And this, and there, and because they were putting so much of this arsenic trioxide into this particular candy recipe, um, every single humbug contained enough arsenic to kill two people. And the, and so when I was talking about the confectioner being sick, he got sick, the lineman got sick, the people who were working to put this got sick. And these humbugs turned out slightly different colored. They were darker than normal, right? And so when they took them over to Humbug Billy, he went, you know, this is a clearly an off batch. And they got he got a discounted price on his 40 pounds of poisonous candy, <laughs> although he sold it for the same price as he ever did. And so and then he took one and he got really sick. But they went ahead and sold them anyway, and hundreds of people bought them. This was cheap candy. And within a day, two little boys had died. And the original thought was that they had died of cholera. Arsenic poison mimics a gastrointestinal illness. It's a broad spectrum poison. And one of the symptoms of it, you can get a sore throat, you're nauseated, you're throwing up, you have severe stomach pains, this kind of thing that you might get with an infectious disease like cholera. And then more people started to die and more people started to die and more people got sick. And so by the end of this particular candy selling event, Um, There were 200 people, some of them very ill and more than I think 20 or 21 people had died. Right. A lot of them were children because if if that amount of arsenic was super dangerous for adults, it was much more dangerous for a kid. Oh, I see. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I mean, I'm I'm tempted to just ask you about arsenic and the history of arsenic. (laughs) Yeah, I love arsenic. Arsenic's my favorite poison. <laughs> it sounds super creepy, but it's such a versatile, well-rounded, you know, effective poison. You have to admire that, right? And so in the 19th century, they didn't even figure out, arsenic was so widely used. It really was known as the inheritance powder. And because it was so tasteless and odorless, people would put it in anything. Right. There were actually scientists who did arsenic taste testing and, you know, tested it out and things like vanilla pudding and couldn't taste it. It's not like a strychnine or a cyanide where, it, you know, there's all kinds of warning signals because of the bitterness. And, and it mimicked the symptoms of a natural illness. And it was not really detectable in a, a human body or a dead body until about 1840. And that was a pretty primitive test. It was called the Marsh test. So it was beloved by poisoners of the 19th century. And the other thing about it, and I kind of hinted around that, you know, we have this kind of weird love-hate relationships with poisons. We know that they're dangerous. I mean, arsenic was a famous homicidal poison, but we also, you know, can see them as useful. And so arsenic made this 
beautiful green dye. I mean, people were poisoned by the green, you know how you put like green uh, flowers, um, you're decorating a cake with flowers with green leaves. Those green leaves would be green by arsenic. Right? What? Yes, seriously. <laughs> and people made wallpaper. William Morris wallpaper is famously, the original famously poisoned, poisonous because it was colored with arsenic. And one of my favorite arsenic stories, and it was also used in wallpapers. So, you know, when they finally were looking at how Napoleon was poisoned by arsenic, they re they eventually realized that he was killed by his wallpaper, <gasps> which was Paris green, which was one of the famous arsenic greens. And it started off-gassing arsene gas. <laughs> it was like in that sea air near Elba and the wallpaper started breaking down and it off-gassed this poisonous gas. So, um, and they could go on and on about arsene. It's such a fantastically interesting poison and was beloved by cereal poisoners. So in the late 19th century, Marianne Cotton poisoned, I want to say almost 24 members of her family before she got caught, wow. just mixing it into her oatmeal. And this was one of the things that made it so dangerous in the Bradford's incident, because no one could taste it, right? And then, of course, they mistook it for a natural illness, which was one of the other things about arsenic. Um, and even in the United States, well until the 1930s and 40s, there are some very famous arsenic poison, cereal poisoners, right? Um, and so, I mean, some of them use other poison. I'm really interested in women poisoners. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to cover Marianne Cotton. We're going to have to have you back and just, you know, really focus on these uh, cereal female poisoners. I mean, they're so, I'm always saying to people, they're so, you know, underappreciated right? <laughs> because poisoners and not like an, an accident, like we're talking about, but in general, poisoners are really detailed planners and plotters, right? I mean, you can kill with almost anything else by impulse, but you can't kill with poison by impulse, right? Wow. So you really, so, so some of their stories are just beyond devious. And I think that's probably why I find them so fascinating. And I find our profligate use of arsenic fascinating at a time that everyone knew that it was a very lethal poisoning. And in fact, there's a theory, if you go back and you look at the um, beautiful pale Victorian complexion, that most of that was because women were suffering from low dose arsenic poisoning, right? Wow. They were taking Fowler's solution. You could go back. I've got copies of some of these ads where, you know, they say harmless arsenic, which it isn't. <laughs> so, and then the, my last thing, and I'll quit talking about arsenic, is that <laughs> it's dangerous at very low doses too. So here you have an acute arsenic poisoning and you're dead in a day or so, right? But arsenic in the part per billion level is so dangerous that the EPA level for it in drinking water is 10 parts per billion. And in fact, when you get above that, actually it can do some harm there. It, um, but when you get into the like, you know, somewhere between 10 parts per billion and a part per million, you can have really serious effects because it acts very differently in this low dose sense. It attacks uh, the cells of the cardiovascular system. 
And they had an outbreak in, it was Taiwan, of what they called Blackfoot disease. They had arsenic in the well water, a naturally occurring source at about a part per million. And people started developing gangrene, oh, right? Wow. Because of the arsenic damage to their cardiovascular cells. So it's also a huge environmental hazard. And so, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, it's my favorite poison. It, it's so bad in so many you're, ways. You're right? clearly very passionate about arsenic. I am. Um, <laughs> so I, how are poisons commonly stored and labeled? And who controlled them? Who had access to them? How did the system change after the poisonings? Yeah, that's a, a fantastic question. So at that point, there was really no regulation of um, how poisons were handled or no requirements, say, for a chemist or pharmacist like the one I was talking about to keep any record of who bought, brought what. And people were careless with labels, right? They were, care I mean, not that we're not careless today, but, there, you know, because there were no requirements that you store properly or label properly or really any labeling requirements at all, you could get an, a catastrophic accident like that. And you could see um, people walk into a pharmacist and walk out with arsenic, um, you know, 12 pounds of arsenic in this case, but also, you know, the casual person who comes in and buys an arsenic formula or in Britain and the United States, a lot of the rat poisons were arsenic. My, you know, my favorite one, the most popular one was called Rough on Rats, which it was. But you could just walk into a hardware store and leave with a couple pounds of arsenic, right? Wow. Without any record at all. So after the Bradford poisoning case, two things happened in England uh, or the UK. Um, they passed a law in 1860, which was the Food and Adulterations Act. And that really regulated, you know, or attempted to regulate uh, adulterants in food. And, and in England in particular, they were very aware, had been very aware of this problem. There was a book called um, A Treatise on Food and Their Adulterants, which was published in London in 1820. And so there had been this ongoing pressure, right, to get Britain to do something about all the horrible things that were going into foods that, you know, metallic elements like arsenic, the use of lead in also in candy, right? And so the Food and Their Adulterants Act, um, you know, really attempted to set some limits on that. But and that was in 1860. But a lot of people will also link the Bradford case to a law that passed in 1868, which was the Pharmacy Act. And that was the first act in England that required people when they went to a chemist. Again, I'm saying pharmacist when I say chemist. Mm -hmm. Right. But when they went to a chemist to buy um uh, something that was a toxic substance, they had to sign for it, right? And they had to put down their name and the chemist had to make a record of what it uh, what had been bought so that there was some kind of tracing in place if you were going to take that arsenic and do something bad with it. Um, that followed much, much, much later in the United States, right? Um, the United States was super resistant, this won't surprise you, to regulation. And so the first Food and Drug Act didn't pass for another over 45 years after the British wow. right, Act. Yeah, it's crazy. So 
At the end of the day, if you had to blame one person or thing, it can be a concept for uh, the Brad the Bradford poisoning of 1858. Who or what would that be? You know, it's interesting because the people who were prosecuted were the candy maker and the candy maker and his assistant and the chemist. And they all got off because there were no laws stopping them from making that mess. And, you know, I look at that and I think, you know, the person who should have been prosecuted and wasn't was the candy seller. He He was never charged, maybe because he got so sick. But he ate that candy on delivery because it looked funny and it made him really sick and he still sold it. And so to me, he's the missing prosecution in this case. There's no evil intent here, except when it gets to the point, this is my personal opinion, where you take something that you know is tainted in some way or suspicious in some way and you sell it to the public. And so when I look at the prosecution record there, I think, what in the world, right? Why wouldn't you sell the guy who sold the candy to the public? Because he's the one who actually poisoned 200 people. He directly put that out there, even suspecting there was something wrong with it. So he's the person that I hold most responsible. You know, the system sucked. And people made careless errors and there wasn't good quality control, as we like to say. But, you know, but responsibility, accountability wise, I blame the candy seller. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're going to have to discuss and I don't know, we might even change our verdict. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's the way I feel. As you can tell, I love talking about arsenic. But also these kinds of events that lead to actual change, right? This led to legislation. Yes. You know, this made a difference. So that's part of it's cool, too. And thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. 
Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at the alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot alarmist. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello, everyone. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. So a lot of information, a lot of passion coming from Deborah. So much passion. Yeah. <laughs> Deborah was awesome. I, I love hearing somebody who loves doing what they and, and it really feels like she's the person who should be talking about this. Yes, right. What a delight. <laughs> like in all she's, regard. She knows the science. She's articulate. She's a writer. Yep. And she's so passionate she, she set her hair on fire practicing what she loves. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when yes. people didn't, her hair was on fire during the whole interview. So. <laughs> <laughs> she is uh, definitely the right guest when, expert. And people um, also don't know this is a common misconception. When you lie, your pants go on fire. But when you're telling the truth so much, you're out, your hair goes on fire. <laughs> <laughs> There's a truth teller right there. She's on fire. <laughs> so, I mean, I saw that you guys were writing notes galore. Uh, yes. as, as we were discussing, um, I, I thought it was fast. She did confirm that sugar was expensive. So yes. yeah, I was way off on that. I yeah. said 272. I, uh, I, I, I mean, had a feeling. I I'll, had a feeling. I'll be honest. The boys ha- I had the day. I gave the boys a half a day on that day. You should get some girls on the squad. <laughs> you should. Yeah. Get <laughs> there are some girls. I just call them all the boys. That's, okay. It's cool. Okay. It's in the- <laughs> That's really that's really awesome. It's in yeah, their contract. Really progressive. And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to say, if I were gonna like, I'm in the mood to make a cake, or if it's someone's birthday, I'm gonna make them a cake, and I had to go drop seventy bucks just to buy a thing of sugar to make that. I'd be like, maybe a cupcake, <laughs> <laughs> small cake. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Um, so very expensive. Makes a lot of sense why they were. I mean, does. You know, it's understand not understandable. You know what I'm saying. It, it makes sense why they were putting plaster of Paris or Daft into the right. you know the the candies. Um, the adultering you're talking about. The adultering. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I, I thought it was so interesting that she was like, we should all bake something to the you know using the the uh, ingredients that were used at the time. Right. Um, and In- how including like including the Daft. Yeah, and like how terrible it would probably taste. Yeah. They probably weren't very sweet. The description of her just being like, you know, it's like a ground rock. It's like what we mix plaster with. Do they imagine like the thought of putting just like the equivalent of plaster in anything that you're eating sounds mm-hmm. so unappetizing. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it also made me think about um, food al- food adultering of today because mm. n- not, not to say that uh, it was anywhere near as bad also, uh, but you know, you, you, you've eaten half of a Hershey bar and kind of left it out. For a while, it kind of gray, starts to gray a little bit or like the refrigerated Hershey bar kind of grays a little bit. Whereas if you get like one of those expensive like dark chocolates, like um, they just taste so different. So I don't know. There's sugar and, it, you know, not all candy bars are built 
all candy bars are built equal? differently. Equal, right? Mm, exactly. Interesting. So we she she said well she talked a lot about arsenic, which we're gonna have to have her back to you know do some kind of uh, arsenic who's to blame you know murder you know mm-hmm. uh, because. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Clayton, in the middle of that arsenic, uh, uh, when she was talking about arsenic, asked me to look up who invented it or whatever. But I, oh, the best I can find with this guy is Zosimos of Panopolis, mm. who was uh, three hundred in the in the third century uh, AD. Mm. Guy just messing with chemicals, and I think he sort of like turned discovered it into it. a powder. He discovered it, turned it into a powder. But was it seemed really clear to me is that if someone, whoever, if it was Zosimos or whoever discovered it, and we realized how potent it is, uh, and that it's undetectable, it's like you know I was uh, chatting with Chris, being like you know I realized that natural gas, for instance, doesn't have that smell that's added so that you can smell a gas leak. It's a safety thing. Right. So it's like wh- I wonder, shouldn't we be putting like a fake? flavor like if you taste this in your then again you might just think it's that flavor like what's the flavor it just <laughs> right. it's like really awful <laughs> rich let's put rich rich vanilla yes <laughs> terrible <laughs> idea <laughs> i guess you could put like i don't know poop flavor yeah right you know just something that's like like bitter bitter sour so you know something's off right away yeah but you know? we, we'd probably just like start liking it all of a yeah, sudden yeah it's true it's a, a smart idea though clayton uh, But, um, you know, aside from all of the, you know, arsenic facts, too, I I was fascinated with the her, you know, I I think we kind of like we had a feeling that we we wanted to put capitalism and that kind of greed up on the board. But, you know, and I take full blame, full responsibility for knocking capitalism off the board. Sure. Um, But. I just thought that Deborah's take on the actual candy seller and why they were to blame mm. was very on point. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind to of remind, what we were feeling. Yeah. Just to remind everyone, we threw the druggist Hodgson in the jail and we gave the adulteration of food the big slap. So, right. And in her case, what her point was that she tried it and or, or the, um, the candy seller tried it and got sick. Yes. And he pushed it anyway. And you do this every day. Like, this is where it's like the responsibility. If you are making the stuff and you know that it's off, you've got to have some kind of reflection on that instead of just worried about the bottom line. Yeah, totally. So here's what I'm thinking. I think we do change the verdict on this one. Whoa. Wow. And I feel very strongly about it, actually. Okay. Because it was, you know, yes, the druggist should have the the chemist, the druggist, the pharmacist, whatever you want to call them, uh, should have labeled his arsenic. Duh, that's like beginners in in uh, organizing, right? <laughs> Label mm-hmm. the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the fact that the can, like Deborah said, the fact that the candy maker tasted it, got extremely sick, and was like, ah, eh, sell it anyway. That shows a lack of responsibility and care for your fellow uh, community, for for those who are, you know, your clients, your your mm-hmm. your uh, customers. So, I think I'm going to call it. I'm not going to stand in your way. <laughs> I'm going to ra- lay down the red carpet for you to do it. So, humbug Billy, the candy seller, you're going to the alarmist jail. 
Get the druggist out. Get mm. the druggist out. The jail now doesn't have a drug dealer anymore. Right. Which is actually for the best. But it right? does have a candy seller. Right. Which makes me think of uh, the new movie Candyman that just came out. Mm. Uh, and I'm excited that I'm excited me, to see. Me too. Me too. Me too. Don't <laughs> say it anymore, though, because we could tell you've already said it once. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, so... I feel good about that. Our work is good. Clayton, do we have any um, uh, housekeeping? Sure. Yes. I could read you a fun little review from someone who's loving on the pod. Love. Love. This is from Miranda64. Miranda says, this podcast includes three of the most valuable tools in life, humor, history, and humility, all with an H. (laughs) Always entertaining. Love Amanda's dry sense of humor. We miss you, Amanda. And informative, the hosts are also more than willing to reconsider their judgments once the experts, who are truly phenomenal, and we know that, have weighed in. This is my first ever rate and review. So thank you, Miranda, for the love. Oh, a perfect uh, uh, review to read on this episode because we actually did change the verdict. Right. Um, And and, uh, thank you, Miranda, for the H3, which are humor... Humility humor, and I'm forgetting humor, the word. history, most history. importantly, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and humility. <laughs> uh, which one do we have less of? Hmm. <laughs> she put humor first because I think we have more humor and then history, and we have not that much humility. But I appreciate that she suggested it. <laughs> That's yeah, sweet. Yeah. That's sweet. Well, yes, please help us uh, support the podcast by rating and reviewing and subscribing on our Apple podcast. It really helps get the word out. Of course, we also have our ACAST supporter. Um, we are, you know, very appreciative of all of those who are helping us keep the mics on and also helping us get to our goal of 1 million episodes. So props to you. Uh, thank you, Alarmy, and stay tuned for next week's episode because we are discussing the death of Natalie Wood. It's going to be a really sad one. And it's it's got so many twists and turns. You guys are going to be very intrigued. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 